Welcome to IntroCap Interviews. I have asked industry expert David Kaufman, founder of Westcourt Capital, to conduct today's interview with Mike Quinn, co-founder of RPIA. Mike is currently involved in an advisory capacity as principal and senior advisor. Previously, as the CIO, he was responsible for formulating and implementing the firm's investment strategy across the funds. He has expert knowledge of the global credit markets, coupled with extensive experience in managing credit risk exposures across multi-billion dollar portfolios. Please welcome David and Mike. Morning, Mike, and thanks for joining us today. Morning, David. Pleased to be here. Terrific. Let's dive right into what makes Mike Quinn tick. <laughs> uh, can you tell us a little bit about about your the, your early years, your education, uh, and how it was that you ended up uh, working in the financial industry? Sure, that's a lot to pack in, but I'll I'll start in Etobicoke, where I grew up. I went to a high school called Kipling Collegiate, uh, Wildcats, go Wildcats, uh, <laughs> and then I went to Queens. Uh, after Queens, where I actually started in engineering. And I finished my degree in, in, in the Commerce School, or now the Smith School of Business, um, which I did finish on time. I had, had a lot of electives from engineering. Uh, and I went and worked for four years for a real estate developer in Toronto, uh, a fellow by the name of Murray Frum. His wife was quite famous, Barbara. She did the uh, CBC uh, radio show. And then I went back after about four years in real estate because I realized in real estate, if you don't have skin in the game, it's really hard to get paid really well. You can get paid well as a mercenary, signing deals, doing leases. But um, I wanted to do two things. I, I, I wanted to go back because when I was at Queens, I probably wasn't as focused as I could have been. So I went back and did an MBA. And um, that's when I started looking for a job in earnest. And actually, I was all lined up to work for a, a family, uh, Joe Hussein. He had a real estate development company out west. Most people know what it's called intrawest and i'd worked there for the summer um doing shopping or doing leases up at whistler which i really really enjoyed but i came back to toronto my brother was working at rbc capital markets or then it was known as dominion securities and i walked onto the trading floor and i immediately knew this was something i wanted to actually do so i i, so let, I let's back up a second sure. I'm, I'm, i find it fascinating when you find people such as yourself who start in one entire discipline and end up in a different discipline. But in, often you'll hear, um, in, you know, in my case, I'm trained as a lawyer and I use it every day, even though I don't practice law. Um, the, what drove you into thinking you wanted to be an engineer? Uh, it, what drove you away from becoming an engineer? But how did the training that you did have when you, when you began studying engineering, how did that carry you through understanding the way the world's world works and the concept that in engineering, I presume every question has an answer? Uh, so we're getting really philosophical here, but I think in high school, I did quite well in math and physics. So it was a, just a natural uh, extension. Um, when I was in engineering, I found it was really focused and really narrow and Besides having a lot of classroom time and a lot of homework, um, I had a couple of good friends who were on the floor that I lived in residence and they were in business and I'd owned a business. Um, I'd had a college pro franchise as a, when I was a, a senior in high school and all the way th through university. And I love the idea of the entrepreneurial business. Um, the vocational training for engineering was super, but 
business is what attracted me. And I, I will say that if you study the, the finance part of business, there's, you know, there's obviously human relations, there's um, marketing. I really focused on the finance and mathematical aspects of business. And I kind of view it like going to a work site. You can bring your bag of tools. You got to have them. And if you don't have them, it's really hard to get stuff done. But you need to have basic skill sets. So notwithstanding, I left engineering. The idea when I was studying finance and, you know, looking at duration, convexity, um, even central bank policy, these are pretty mechanical things. And I, I, I like the natural organization of that. And I also like, although it's a natural science, I liked economics a lot. So it was a pretty natural extension. And um, like water, I like to take the easier course sometimes. And engineering was a lot more work than uh, the faculty of uh, business, although the business school probably doesn't want to hear that. Right. So you, you ended up um, uh, having the epiphany that the financial world was for you when you saw the trading floor. Uh, and it, it, and this was not in the last 20 years. And uh, everyone, everyone's seen the movies, excuse me, about what it was like on those trading floors. Um, there must have been a, a, a real mix of characters that you ran into. There must have been people with propellers on their heads doing math all day and other people that having one phone on each ear yelling buy, sell, buy, sell. And can you talk a little bit about what it was that drew you to that and then how that led into uh, the world of credit and bond trading? Sure. So at um, I was very fortunate at Dominion Securities at the time. It was just was being bought by RBC. I think it was bought by RBC in 1992. I started in 1993. Um, um, and I was hired into a group called the Generalist Program, and they still have that program. There's a dealer trainee program. The Generalist Program is distinct from that. They hire four a year. Um, Gord Nixon, the former CEO, was a dealer or, or was a generalist. Uh, Jonathan Hunter, who's now the head of capital markets, he was a generalist. So they hire four a year and you spend um, four to six months in the four key divisions. And at the time, it was called bonds and money market, investment banking, research and retail. That was That's the that, that was the grouping <laughs> of the firm. So you spent, you know, six months in each of those. So it was almost a two-year um um, rot rotation, and you were thrown into the thick of things. You were you were working like in investment banking. I was working on deals. I was doing spreadsheets, um, and I, I remember there was a paper company buying another paper company out out west. I can't remember the name now, and we were doing like the stuff that we learned in business school. We were actually doing it for real. So it was pretty exciting. Um, the retail desk. Uh, there was a woman named Frances Horodowski. She ran the retail desk and the retail desk's job was to take all the good institutional information in the firm and put it into a digestible format so that, so that the retail IAs could use that information and make good decisions for their, uh, for their clients. And that was super interesting. And while I was on that yeah. desk, there was a public company called Gold Corp. And there's another firm called CSA and CSA owned two shares for every Gold Corp share. So in theory, it should have traded at twice the price of Gold Corp, but it wasn't. So I remember reading the prospectus, reading about the firm. It was just a, basically a shell company, and its only purpose was to own these shares. And I went to the head of the mining research group, and I said, what do you think of this? He goes, it can't be right, because if it is, we're going we're to do a really neat trade here. So I went away, came back. And so what amazed me both about being in the investment banking group and the retail group was we were doing things that were real right away. So... I became infatuated with the business, the idea that things happen quickly, 
It was a real meritocracy. In many respects, you ate what you killed. I mean, not necessarily at a firm like DS back in the day, but the idea that the, um, the, the folks who were doing well got immediate recognition. So I, beca- so I really liked that environment and I was on the bond floor and it was, you know, Andy Pringle, who's still my partner to this day, who I sat 10 feet from, um, after my rotation came back and said, hey, we'd like you to stay. And um, my, my time in the bond market was super interesting. If I'm going on too long here, just interrupt me. But the, 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 the Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, that, that famous book, or uh, book, um, the government bond trader was the absolute pinnacle of capital markets. But at that time, government deficits were shrinking and the corporate debt environment was really growing. So I wound up fortunate enough to be sitting um, in the middle of the biggest corporate trading desk in the country. And at the advent of a something called medium term notes, which didn't exist prior to this, it was only money market or bonds. And I was in a part of the market that was growing quickly. There weren't a ton of rules. It hadn't been done before. And I was at the biggest underwriter in the country and it just evolved from there. And so Michael Lewis took his experience on a floor and wrote Liar's Poker and ended up being one of the great authors in in all things financial. Mike Quinn took what he learned and ended up partnering with Andy and Richard Pilosoff, as as you indicated. And and let's jump forward a few, um, a a couple of years, uh, that you start RPIA, and RPIA is a credit shop. And... uh, you know, I think the listeners would be really interested in, in understanding your understanding of how to express what it is that you know about bonds and bond trading and how you express that through being a credit trader versus being a, a, a rates trader and, and why it is that you have chosen as a firm to trade credit and not rates. So, Correct. I, I think I'm going to do a little bit of very basic dialogue on just getting some of the key terms right here um, for, the, for, the, for the listening group. And for some, it'll be trivial. And for some who maybe don't do it daily, it might be a bit much. So um, the term fixed income is the idea that you buy a, a, a financial asset and over time, um, you get paid interest rate for, for lending the money. And then at the end, you get back all of your principal. Um, and, the, and the idea it's called fixed income is because the cash flows are expected. Uh, people confuse, I think, preferred shares as a fixed income instrument. They certainly, in theory, if they work out well, pay you as expected. But because they're closer to equity than they are to debt, you can get some nasty surprises. So staying in fixed income, I think Basically, if there was two bonds in the world, there'd be a bond issued by a government. And when you learn in school about the risk-free rate, U.S. Treasuries, Government of Canada, um, it gets more complex as you go to countries like, say, Argentina or Mexico or Russia. But the risk-free rate, I think if you take any of the big G7 countries, depending on the day, maybe Italy, maybe not Italy, but certainly the idea that there's a risk-free rate, those are, those are government bonds. And that was the biggest market in the world for a long time in fixed income. And that's been slowly eclipsed by credit. And credit would be for any of the Canadians listening out there. And I, I use this ex- example a lot because most people use these services and they, they bank there, but um, Rogers or Bell, um, they borrow a lot of debt. So when, when they borrow debt and, it's a, and it's, 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 it's a fixed income instrument, it acts just like a government bond, but you get paid an additional yield above the risk-free rate 
that compensate you. You know, we could get really deep about it, but it compensates you really for two things. One, the riskiness of one of those credits paying you back is lower or yeah, it's, it's less likely than a government. A government can always print money, Mexico, Argentina. We can, that's a different dialogue, but certainly that they can print the money and then the liquidity of the instrument, because it's not as big and it's not as sought after there's a, there's some compensation for the liquidity risk. So, Super simplistically in fixed income, there's two types of bonds. There's government bonds and there's credit bonds. And the neat thing about credit bonds is you can isolate the, the additional credit spread that you get paid for owning that type of credit. So when people trade in the business, it's often, you know, you refer first to the creditor. Is it Royal Bank? Is it, is it AT&T? Is it Verizon? Horizon? It can be any credit. And then given a term, there's generally a spread associated with what the market demands for you to get paid for that additional risk that you're taking. So when you're trading Royal Bank 10 years, someone will say a number, 125, 110. And that number represents the additional number of basis points, 125 basis points, one and a quarter percent additional yield over the risk-free rate. And that's the vernacular and that's the, the content of where I spent all my time at the bank. Whether it was raising money for, uh, you know, capital markets, you have to remember that's where the savers go and the borrowers meet. They meet in the capital markets to transfer the money from the savers into the borrowers. And that's the capital markets process. And we would assess what we thought was a fair spread and then bring those deals into the marketplace. And the right, big. So big I, thank you. And, you know, I've often said that you know, the role of, of, of any of us that provide advisory services services in the financial industry is to ensure that we're getting either adequately or overpaid for the risk that we take. And so that's exactly what you're describing is being able uh, to assess the level of risk being taken on something that is not risk-free uh, and then determining whether that number is fair. Now, you're, so you're able uh, at RPIA to hedge out the volatility that might come with changes in interest rates in the, in the risk-free rate uh, by shorting the appropriate amount of government debt. We don't have to go into the mechanics behind that because at the end of the day, what you're really doing is betting on your analysis with respect to the credit spread. But why don't we turn to that for a minute, uh, to credit spreads in terms of volatility? Because we all know, any, anyone who, who, who has watched the last 18 months in the financial markets is well aware that it's possible for the risk-free rate to increase by over 400 basis points in a short period of time. But I think that people that have even a, even a passing familiarity with, with credit understand that, that credit spreads themselves can be highly volatile, often when the stocks um, themselves of the issuers are volatile. So can you talk to us a little bit about how uh, volatility can be your friend, how it can be your enemy, and then maybe throw in how using leverage can amplify uh, it being your friend or enemy. Sure. And as I go into that, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to say a little some, something about duration and rates. So when you buy a bond from Rogers or Bell and you isolate just the credit risk, you are in effect in the portfolio. If credit spreads go wider on a mark to market basis, the value of the portfolio will go down. And if credit spreads go tighter, you're going to uh, have an immediate appreciation on a mark-to-market basis. And over time, if nothing changes from inception to the end of the maturity of that bond, you'll just earn that spread. Um, and that's 
how that that market works. So when you take out the rate piece, um, a portfolio with rates so, is a lot more volatile than a pure credit portfolio. Um, and when and when you talk to banks about financing the portfolio, they'd much rather finance a portfolio that's rate hedged, so okay. it's just the credit spread, than not. So then, you know, when credits move around, and if you go back to March uh, and June during COVID, or you go back to the Great Financial Crisis, there were periods when those um, spreads moved faster than the underlying rate market, which is atypical. So volatility of broad markets, I think the underlying or the centerpiece is going to be equity vol. And as equity vol goes up, everything else tends to move around more. Um, and um, there's a high correlation. Um, we've modeled it going back from whenever we had, had data. And the correlations, you know, the, the R squared is north of 75, maybe approaching 85, which just means if equities are really volatile, credit spreads are going to be volatile too. So, how do, so we've hedged out the rate risk and now we're along a portfolio of credit. And depending on a variety of things, and I think we'll talk, we're going to get into this later, but when money's really inexpensive, like it was from 09 to 2012, and the curve is positively sloped, it creates one dynamic where you want to leverage that credit. Whether you're leveraging the credit or not, the credit still moves around. And if you want to dampen the vol utility, we've adopted a few different techniques that we put into the portfolio. And that is to basically pay a part of the running yield that we create in the portfolios to dampen the insanity around really volatile markets. And we do three things, um, typically out of the money puts on equities. And the reason we buy them out of the money is because they're cheaper. And we're really only looking for protection if things get very difficult. So as you start to move towards the strikes where you've got your puts, the value of those options go up and they go up very, very quickly. And, and the term in the market is convexity. They have a convex profile where for little moves, they don't do much. But as the moves get more exaggerated, the value of the options come into, them, come into themselves quite quickly. So we try to create, because we're creating a fundamental portfolio with real fundamental analysis where we think this, these bonds are all going to pay back. Barring something truly unforeseen, we're going to earn that coupon over time, notwithstanding there could be noise between now and maturity of the portfolio, but we're going to make that right. return. So how do we dampen the volatility for extreme moments? One is out of the money puts on equity, and then risking getting into too much complexity. There's lots of different indices in the credit market that trade in one number. So the entire universe of investment grade credit in the U.S. is represented by an index called um, Credit default swap IG is currently number 40. And that trades at around 65. And that's the biggest 100 issuers in North America. And that's the average spread of that portfolio weighted for the size that they are in that portfolio. And that's just one number. We also buy, in effect, puts on that. But we do something a little bit tricky. It's a little bit of math, but it creates the same thing as, a, as an end of the money put in the equity world, where we'll buy protection on a tranche of that, meaning our tranche only has value if there's a bunch of defaults in front of it. It's getting complex, but it will have the same convexity profile, where for little moves, there's not a ton of value, but as moves accelerate and get bigger and correlations go up, the value of that protection goes up. So what we're trying to do is through good fundamental credit research, create a portfolio with a robust running yield, Depending on the environment, we may or may not use leverage or more leverage. And then we try to buffer the noise 
between now and maturity to give a better or, or to give a better return profile risk adjusted if you assume risk is vol vol by putting yeah. on these types of end of the money hedges that ideally have a convex uh, a structure so sorry for getting so, too complicated I mean, so what, what i'm hearing here mike is i have a very successful restaurant on a pier okay and when the weather is normal i can expect to make a certain return when the weather is beautiful i can make i can have even more diners spending even more money and when the weather turns horrible i can buy insurance against hurricanes and fire uh, and I hope never to use that insurance, but it's it's there in the event of a precipitous event. Um, and the one thing I think that we all need to understand is that in an extreme situation, the hedges notwithstanding, because everything you own is marked to market, meaning that you you could you could go get a bid for almost anything you own. You might just not like the answer. That it is still possible to have short-term wild fluctuations where even though the market is technically open, it's acting a little bit like it's closed. Is that a fair comment during extreme events? A hundred percent. And and so the, the mark to market, um, when you, I, I think the thing you have to realize, A, in, in, in our portfolios, every instrument is, is tradable at a price. Um, and I think it's important that the liquidity of the funds, and this is not just our funds, but any fund, that the liquidity of the funds hey. actually matches the liquidity of the underlying instruments. And we saw back in 2018, 19, when there was a, a crisis in the UK, hey. there was these huge um, funds that were underpinned by real assets. I'm not just talking like the actual physical properties were the actual portfolio. Hey. And when people went for liquidity, they couldn't sell them, and we saw this with a with a BlackRock or Black a BlackRock fund about a year ago. The underlying liquidity has to match the instrument that you're actually offering, and with that, there's good and bad. And the mark to market is going to create vol. So our hedging strategies attempt to deal with that, but I think you 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 can't live in a false world where you think oh because the mark to market isn't there that my actual portfolio is worth quote par or whatever i paid for it when you go to sell it it can be a very rude awakening like the house on the street that hasn't sold for a long time the the person living there dies the estate wants the money quickly the price they get at that instance can be very very different to what the real value is and so when we see those situations like we had in march of 2020 or back in the global financial crisis from my lens, those are opportunities. And you right. want to be in position to, you know, realize that peer was a very busy peer. And once that sun's back out and we rebuild, it's going to be a great business. No one wants it right now because there's another hurricane coming. Right. <laughs> um, but that, you know, so that's a, a big thing that we try to do is mask, mask the vol as best we can, spend a portion of our running yield to pay for that. That dampens the noise. And then it puts you in a position that when there is noise, you can hopefully respond by buying the baby when it's run out with the bathwater. Planning has begun for the 13th Canadian Alternative Investment Forum being held on Thursday, April 18th, 2024. If you are interested in receiving more information about speaking or sponsorship opportunities, please email info at introcap.com. Yeah, that's a, that's really well put. And it, and it actually brings me to my next question. I mean, there certainly is a thing as return as risk with no return but there is no such thing as return with no risk and uh without volatility um uh, in the absence of volatility it would be virtually impossible to make outsized returns even when you have tailwinds 
So in your world, as you've said, tailwinds are widespreads, assuming that you went through the, the valley that it took to get to the widespreads, uh, and headwinds would be tight spreads. And if it, uh, all trading is based in some respect on assuming that markets are adequately uh, efficient to allow for, for mean reversion or for things to be the way they ought to be. Let's just speak in English here. And so when you're in a widespread environment where you have tailwinds, um, you have the low-hanging fruit, you have the uh, analysis that your firm does, which is the alpha to find, to find things that other people don't see, uh, and you have a tailwind because as spreads tighten, you'll make money. Um, the same could be said when spreads are tight, that it is possible to sail a boat directly into the wind, but it's significantly more difficult and it will be a long and arduous journey. So can you talk about how we as investors ought to think about a strategy like yours um, so that it can be evergreen and that I'm not loading up when you have tailwinds and heading for the exits when you have headwinds? So there's a, that's a really rich question because it talks about market timing. Do you just buy something and own it through multiple cycles to get a long running yield? I think at a super high level, and I'm going to use a really simple example, then I'll get more into credit. Interest rates have gone from, let's call it, if you bought a six-year, a five-year piece of quality credit um, two years ago, like a Rogers five-year, your all-in yield might have been one and a half. I think that same bond today would be the best part of six and a half. So when you think about a traditional portfolio that's 60-40 and you have that fixed income component to dampen the volatility and you get paid a running yield to own it, it's a great instrument. And I would say from two years ago to today, whatever your weighting was in high quality fixed income, it should be higher today. So then getting to a strategy like ours, and that's just a simple statement. Rates are a lot bigger. You're getting paid for it. And if we have a misstep, rates will come down because the administered rate through the central banks will come down. And that'll give you an immediate lift to your portfolio and hopefully offset some of the losses. So first statement is we're talking about fixed income instruments. There's a time and place to own them. Now is a time to own more than you did before. Is it the absolute entry point now? Is it the best? It could get better. I don't know for sure. But getting back to spreads, when we started in 09, spreads were wide, money was cheap, the curve was positively sloped. That's an environment where you're supposed to use leverage. Today, spreads are on a relative basis tighter. Are they at the point where you should be going the opposite direction? I think it's really easy to construct a portfolio of high quality credit with a shorter duration where you're getting paid really well and hard to imagine a scenario where you wouldn't get your principal back. So I think it still justifies it. But, is it, but, but in that environment, money is expensive to borrow and the curve's inverted. So in, that's in this environment, when we started, we used lots of leverage. Today, we use way less leverage. The composition of the portfolio is different. The number of turns of leverage is much lower and the credit selection is shorter in nature and higher in quality because we know we're approaching or near the end of a cycle. So we're not getting adequately compensated like we were before. And it, 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 it actually argues prudence. So when I think about the portfolio, is there a way to create a good running yield that will not be volatile and are we and will we be well positioned for the inevitable missteps that we get to add things that we want to? So my argument would be with the benefit of hindsight, 09 to 12 for a strategy like ours, limit long, 
in terms of the composition of your portfolio and how much you'd actually want to have. Today, you want to have enough so that when we get that inevitable misstep, that you'll rely on the process and a long track record to allow you to invest and hopefully find a few babies in the bathwater. So I, I would say today's environment for our strategy isn't as robust as it was in 09 and 10. Um, but on a risk-adjusted basis, when I look at other asset classes, I think it's still very, very attractive. And most critically, I think the liquidity of the overall package far exceeds many other asset classes out there. So my argument would be not as much, but you definitely have to have some. And I would also say, if you're a traditional investor of any type, you should be asking yourself, how do I get more traditional fixed income exposure? Because I think you need that as well. So that's really well put. And, and one thing that many listeners are probably familiar with is the concept of a strategic asset allocation, you know, the big pie chart, as compared to sort of tactical maneuvering along the way to rebalance or to love something a little more than something else for a given period of time, that there are a lot of investors, whether they be high net worth or institutional these days, that are taking a new look at their SAA, their strategic asset allocation, and increasing on a cyclical basis um, their exposure to fixed income for all of the reasons that you just articulated. But you mentioned the yield curve a couple of times. Maybe we could dive into that for a minute as it pertains to how to look at, at, at the allocation to fixed income, especially if, it, if it's increasing. Um, the yield curve is a funny thing because I, most people believe uh, that Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the yield curve on a tablet. And that, that it, is, it is the way it is. And the yield curve runs the activities of most of the financial world, notwithstanding the fact that it is often, if not always, wrong. I mean, the best example is a year ago, the yield curve said that today rates would be lower than it was a year ago. And that is clearly not true. And yet the yield curve remains inverted. Assuming that the yield curve will eventually be correct, <laughs> if I say I'm going to have a hole in one every time I play a par three, eventually I'll be able to say that I called it, right? Yep. Um, the If indeed rates will come down eventually, is this not the right time to say I'm increasing my fixed income allocation because Mike Quinn told me that was a good idea, but I'm just going to buy bonds with duration and not hedge out the interest rates because if rates come down, I'm going to make the yield and the bonds I own are going to go up in value because rates are coming down. Why go through all of this fancy artwork to try and get a return when I could just go and buy the bonds? A layered answer. So first, first thing I'd say is to your just go out and buy a high quality, well-selected portfolio and put it away and not think about it. Since we've been in business since 2009, there hasn't been a better time to actually do that. I'm not going to argue. And, and we, as an asset manager, we have long, short mandates, and we also have traditional mandates. And we're doing a lot of work for P&C companies who have that exact risk profile. So the guys who are collecting your premium for your cottage, your premium for your house, your premium for your cars, or your boats, their average uh, liability as a, as a portfolio base is unlike a life company, which is really long, their average expected uh, um, Liability duration is probably two, two and a half years. Perfect environment for them. They can make great money underwriting and great money off the additional spread they get in this market. So the answer to that is yes. But 
why would you consider having an allocation to alt alts over just doing that? So the original fund that we did, which was called Debt Opportunities, has been around since 2009, annualized returns of 8% since inception. Um, if you look at straight IG, uh, materially better than straight IG. Um, the, the high yield fund, which is called Select Opportunities, we started in 2014, annualized return after fees to now is 8%. Um, high yield from inception to, to now in, in that same fund is around four and a half. So there's an additional spread that I think we can create by doing three really simple things. Fundamental work on the credits to create a sound portfolio that at worst, you can white knuckle it through anything because you know you're going to get your money back. Two, because of the active nature of the fund where you can go long and short or employ leverage or not employ leverage. And I'm saying right now, we're not employing leverage the way we did just because of the, of the nature of the curve. Um, and then three, um, the one thing we can do and I think do pretty well, if we were to talk to the 10 top economists in the world, and they're probably at the major banks and they're probably, you know, better educated than collectively us on the screen here. Um, and you'd get 10 different answers where, where, where 10 years going to be in, in, in six months, one year, one year forward. And if you talked about bank policy, I think there'd be a pretty comprehensive, thoughtful response that would say, we've seemed to have tamed the beast, certainly in North America on inflation. Is it adequate? We need more data. Are rates near peak barring some, something truly exceptional? Probably. And rates are probably lower in the short end of the market 18 months forward. I think you'd get eight of them, seven of them, six of them saying that. And um, I think that's the kind of things that drive credit markets in the near term and drive portfolio positioning in the near term. And I think we can do that pretty well. But I, I don't think. We, to, to a, sorry to interrupt you. No, this no. leads us to a be careful what you wish for scenario, right? I need you to play Oracle here. Um, you know, as long as you're 50% correct, you'll have the same batting average as the economists anyway. Uh, so the, can you please tell us what would precipitate a significant drop in rates that doesn't include a financial crisis of some description? <laughs> like how, do, how do we get from 60 miles an hour to 40 miles an hour without slamming on the brakes along the way? So we're kind of setting up for that in this environment where we've got all the telltales of, you know, a weakening consumer. The, 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 so I think it's, I mean, that you, you want the Goldilocks. We all want the Goldilocks. Is that doable? A firm maybe. I, I, just, I just don't think we know. Um, but you know, we watch a series of, of, of things. We look at what the banks tell us in terms of the performance of their loans. Very good telltale. We look at every consumer credit that we can get a handle on. And there's two things that are for sure. Delinquencies, although by no means are in the danger camp, they're going up. And the amount of debt for the consumer is going up. There's an article in the FT today, the consumers are binging on plastic to fill the gap from the government um, subsidy void. And um, we're looking at housing prices, housing turnover. A great bunch of technicals there because no one in the U.S. wants to sell a secondary home because they lose their mortgage. So surprisingly, from our lens anyways, we didn't figure this out until it happened, that um, home builders are, are, are having record times, kind of like the way car dealers 
and houses had record times in the back of COVID. So there's these unexpected things that are occurring. But from the way we're looking at all the fundamental work, what are, what's the indebtedness on the balance sheet? What's their debt service ratio? What's happening to the consumer? What's happening to the debtors? What's happening to the levels? There's nothing that's telling us that there's a flashing red light. Now, these things, you know, it's, it's always what kills you is what you don't see. But we feel that the fundamental market is relatively sound. And we're optimistic that we're going to have a, this sort of Goldilocks glide. But we're watching a bunch of stuff because we just don't think it's going to be that easy. But um, from a credit standpoint, there's and, and banks have dialed back their lending. It's, if there's just nothing telling us that we're worried about it. So I, I can't really answer your question other than simply saying, we don't know what's going to get us this time because we just don't know what it's going to be. And, and by promising me that as a custodian of my money, that at least you have your eyes on the road. <laughs> eyes on the road, hands on the wheel, and a portfolio of hedges that have been thoughtfully constructed that I think will mitigate anything we've seen before. We don't know what we're going to see going forward. And, and, and that's obviously the, the concern. And so I would say really simplistically, how well the home builders have done in the US is beyond me. If you told me 18 months after COVID, vacation properties would be at their record highs, and that the consumer would never be more spending. I, I, these are things that are really hard to gauge. But fundamentally, we're in a pretty decent spot. So notwithstanding yields or sorry, credit spreads in the big scheme are tight. And that would be on your revision on your, on your mern, on, on your mean revision theory, a warning bell, the roadway between now and the end of that, I, I, I think is transparent enough that you can right. still be in that, in that part of the market. I'd like to get just a little philosophical as we wrap up here. Uh, you in your seat have a bit of a unique perch because you're able to see the behavior of ultra high net worth investors and families, but also the behavior of institutional investors. And interestingly, a very large family, if you were to ask them what their investment horizon is, they'd say forever. And an institutional investor would say forever. And yet there appears to be a significant spread in the reactions from uh, ultra high net worth investors to midterm volatility, for example, as there would be at the institutional level. It doesn't mean that they're smarter. It means that they're different people doing different things. Can you just discuss a little bit about the differences you see between uh, institutional investors and, 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 and high net worth families and maybe what either could learn from the other? Yeah, I think the best example of disciplined investors are the insurers. Um, they model what their expected liabilities are, and they create portfolios that have real asset mix um, from private lending to real assets, private equity. Um, so, and, so, and I'm, I'm including in, in life pension. So when you look at a big pension comp a, a firm like CPPIB, our, our Canadian pension plan, or Norges Bank in Norway, the Sovereign Wealth Fund, um, the diversity of what they have in their quiver is incredible. And they don't move everything to black 32 and then to red 27. They've got it all over the board and they're moving weights 
as they respond to how they see the market evolve, how it's worked for them in the past. And it's not herky-jerky. It's a thoughtful allocation of chips across the whole board. And they're just changing the weightings as the market dynamic changes and how they see that happening. So for example, I think when you go back probably 10, 15 years, the Canadian pension plans were the first to really go into private equity. They were tired of paying away fees. They were tired of all this. Different. They said, let's just do it ourselves. And um, they did the same thing in real estate. So they, they basically bought private equity firms and real estate asset managers, and they brought it all in-house. And I would say in talking to some of those investors today, what's clear is their weightings to real estate and their weightings to private equity are really big. And they're probably going the other way after having a great run. So my advice to any modestly wealth person wealthy person would be to get proper consultation, develop that pie chart, create the weights, and know you're going with someone sound, stick to it, and you're moving modestly and rebalancing on a continual basis. But you're not going, oh, I just missed these 15 companies in the S&P that are ripping and I got to get some of them. And all of a sudden you're right. in. So, so it's not driven by FOMO and it's not driven by random 30-day increments called months. It's driven by uh, am I achieving my objectives over the long run? And in the absence of a really good reason to change those objectives, I'm sticking with them. And I would make the one final comment for a, a large, for a wealthy person, their wealth's already created. So their only objective is to avoid drama and create a reasonable return over a reasonable period of time. And we all know 7% doubles in 10 years and 10 doubles in seven. And seven to 10% returns, although not that sexy, if you've already got your wealth and you know you're not going to have any drama, I don't see why you wouldn't be happy with that. that, that right. The that, ultimate objective is not having to get rich twice. Correct. I think that's a, <laughs> well, that's a really good note uh, to end it on. I'm sure that the listeners found this as edifying as I did. So thank you very much for taking the time to share your expertise and your thoughts with us. Uh, and best of luck in executing the strategy as we navigate the unknown waters uh, going forward. Well, David, it was a real pleasure being here and uh, thank you for including me and allowing me to uh, opine. Great. Thank you both. That was um, a really thoughtful interview. Very informative and much appreciated. Thank you for listening to Intro Cap Interviews. Karen will be interviewing Mindy Maiman from Richter Family Office next month on October 3rd. See you then.